Welcome to Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert, a podcast sponsored by the Healing Lives Center. Discover how to love and lead your family well and biblically. God created sex, marriage, and the family for our stewardship, growth, and benefit. My heart and passion is to teach, train, educate, and disciple Christians that want strong marriages and families. The Healing Life Center has been serving Christians since the year 2000. Its mission is to be a center for sex, trauma, and marriage education and transformation, where we offer counseling, coaching, courses, and speaking services to you, your church, or ministry. Check us out at HealingLives.com. Welcome back. This is Dr. Corey Gilbert, and I am reviewing this book, or actually not reviewing, going through in detail, Lost in Transnation, A Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. The previous episode, we looked at the forward and the introduction, and today we're going to dive into chapter one. Uh, why is this important? Parents, you need to read this book. Leg- uh, anyone, counselors, this is so critical that we actually become um, a part of the solution, not a part of the madness. And so chapter one, we're going to understand now the history. How did we get here? And just the next two, two uh, um, chapters really kind of dive into that. So chapter one is John Money's Dangerous Idea. Um, I'm going to read directly from the book, and I'm doing this. Why? Because a lot of us don't have time to read the book, um, but it's going to give you some insight from this to prepare you um, to have a defense and to know how to enter these conversations. Quote from David Reamer, um, I was betrayed by the medical profession. They put my life on the line so so that they could hold on to their theories. So scary. So the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, uh, used to have a, a category called gender identity disorder. It was then called, so it was incredibly rare. And that's a really important thing to remember, incredibly rare. Um, so this is Dr. Gro- Grossman, the author of this book, um, speaking of herself. As I studied medicine at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, the, the world's magnet for rare medical and psychiatric conditions, I didn't expect to ever come across a case in my career. And that's what she didn't at first. 35 years later, that's all I do. My entire practice is composed of kids unhappy with their sex bodies and their parents, and I'm forced to turn down many other families' requests. My young patients who have anxiety, autism, depression, and other challenges are certain the solution to their woes is a deeper voice and flat chest or boobs and soft skin. They yearn to transition to the opposite sex, along with their friends, many of whom either take hormones to alter their bodies or count the days until they can start. In chat rooms, they vent about their breasts, hips, and body hair. They binge on YouTube videos, mesmerized by their peers' transformations into synthetic opposite-sex persona. One such influencer, a woman living as a man, says the most common question she gets is, how do I know if I'm trans? Her response, if you think you may be trans, you probably are. She's a superstar with over 385,000 subscribers. Ten years ago, psychiatry, following cultural trends, declared that what was once an extraordinarily rare psychiatric disorder was a normal variant of child development. And guess what? Since then, the numbers have skyrocketed. London is home to the world's largest gender clinic for minors. Serving the entire UK, it opened in 1989 and over its first decade saw an average of 14 patients a year. By 2021 and 2022, That number exploded to 3,585 patients a year, with a waiting list exceeding 5,300. But it's not only the astonishing rise in cases. 
Gender ideology has become a powerful social-political movement. It's taken over our once-trusted medical, educational, and governmental institution. It has co-opted our language and in some places compels our speech. We are blitzed 24-7 with its lexicon and symbols, gender-neutral pronouns, names, pronouns, and bathrooms, non-binary, gender-fluid, gender-queer, the ubiquitous flags and rainbows on buildings, clothing, cereal boxes, and ATM machines, tampon machines next to urinals, drag queen shows for toddlers and honors at the White House. How did this happen? It all rests on one man's theory about what makes us male and female. An entire edifice was built on his idea. It's the foundation of today's madness, and in the foundation, as you will learn, is rotten. John Money. He grew up on a farm in New Zealand. He studied psychology at Harvard, where his 1952 doctorate thesis was about hermaphrodism, a rare medical condition found in one in 5,000 births. Money was fascinated by these cases in which a newborn's genitalia is ambiguous, not clearly male or female, and pioneered the work in sex reassignment or sex assignment, the complex decision of which or whether to raise a hermaphrodite as a boy or girl. In those days, perhaps less now, parents of a baby with ambiguous genitalia faced a real dilemma, boy or girl. Back then, the blankets in hospital nurseries were either pink or blue, um, not the striped variety we have now. Which blanket would wrap the new baby, pink, blue, or pink? Uh, what about a name? What about um, parents? What, what do they tell their siblings, families, friends? In such instances, or in other cases in which it becomes clearer later that there's a disorder, it's accurate to say sex is or was assigned instead of the recognition of male or female that occurs in 99.98% of infants, the circumstances required a decision. So money established the country's first clinic for treatment of hermaphrodites, including their surgeries, at John Hopkins University. His clinic later became the first in the United States to produce sex change surgery for adults. Money had a theory, though. Not only about hermaphrodites, how many were there after all, but about humanity. He believed chromosomes and anatomy were irrelevant to the development of masculine and feminine identities, behaviors, and interests. Instead, he suggested children develop male or female qualities in the first years of life based on how they are treated and on the expression of others. So boys don't wear dresses or express their feelings. Girls are, aren't competitive or good at building things. So to describe the identity imposed from without or socially constructed, he coined the term gender identity. The year was 1957. So this goes back a lot longer than we tend to think. Men impregnate, money wrote, Women menstruate, ovulate, gestate, and lactate. All other distinctions are due to socialization. Can you believe that? That's just mind-boggling. Before money, the notion of divorcing identity from biology did not exist. If you had XX chromosomes, you were female. If you had XY chromosomes, you were male. There was no thought given to whether you felt female or male because that's what you were. What was there to talk about? So John Money changed that. He proposed the existence of a psychological sex separate and more consequential than the body's sex. He named the psychological sex gender. Infants are blank slates when they're born, he claimed, without a predisposition to think, feel, or behave in a masculine or feminine manner. Sex, he said, was determined by nature, but gender was determined by nurture. Sex and gender, two different things, get it? Now there's a lot to talk about here. With his theory, money made a huge leap. 
a hermaphrodite may have been exposed to abnormal levels of hormones in utero. Their genitals developed typically, atypically. Uh, there were there was uncertainty how the child would eventually identify and how to facilitate their adjustment well-being. Because of the uncertainty, they did indeed require assignment at birth as male or female. From those uh, rare infants, as I said, less than 0.02% of births, money speculated about all babies, 99.98% of whom develop normally in utero with normal hormone levels and normal genitals. You see why his theory was a big leap. But as you'll learn, Dr. Money was a daring fellow who pushed limits. He thrived on being in the limelight with shocking views. John Money had an idea. Since, according to his theory, newborns are gender neutral, a child could be raised successfully as the opposite sex. If masculinity and femininity are man-made, social constructs imposed on children without basis for them in biology, why couldn't a boy be raised as a girl or a girl as a boy? Of course, reassignment of a child's sex would necessitate reproductive organs being removed and refashioned. The child would become a sterile adult, dependent on hormones his entire life. But Money's clinic could take care of all of that. Money's only caveat was that the process start by the age of two and a half or three at the latest, because he explained by the age of three, gender is fixed. Stated differently, Money declared we are all psychological hermaphrodites at birth, with the potential of being male or female. Can you believe that? Wow. Our identities are externally ex imposed, unrelated to X or Y chromosomes, genitalia, or reproductive roles. He introduced his revolutionary theory in 1955, and he dedicated his life to changing how people think about a central aspect of humanity. As we will see, he succeeded beyond what could have been imagined. When a person is zealous about a particular cause, when they're convinced of a truth the world must recognize, and their life mission is defined by it, it's worth asking, why this cause? I never met John Money, this is the author speaking, but his writing suggests an answer. John had a traumatic childhood. He was a thin, delicate boy who was bullied at school. His father was prone to explosive acts of violence, terrorized his mother, and abused John. In later life, Money described his father as a brutal man who shot the birds in his fruit garden and whipped four-year-old John over a broken window. It was that incident, Money wrote, that helped establish his lifelong rejection of the brutality of manhood. John was eight when his father died, after which he was raised by his mother and unmarried aunts in a strictly religious home. It's fair to wonder if the absence of a positive male role model during John's early life and repression of his sexuality by his religious mother and aunts contributed to what would today be called his gender dysphoria, a rejection of his male genitals. A quote, I suffered from the guilt of being male, he wrote. I wore the mark of man's vile sexuality. I wondered if the world might really be a better place for women, if not only farm animals, but human males were also gelded at birth. Wow, powerful. That's troubling, isn't it? Coming from a doctor to whom parents turned for advice about having their sons castrated. Again, I never met John Money, but it's fair to suggest his vision of gender divorced from sex served a purpose in the subconscious management of his own childhood trauma. In his child's psyche, not only his father, but all men were cruel. He didn't understand cruelty isn't part of manhood. It's a character trait. Women can be cruel, too. Uh, I venture that as a child, John wished to be more like his mother than his father. But there he was, defined by his anatomy, a member of a group like Little John considered monsters. He didn't realize he could accept his genitals and be a man, 
just not the type of man his father was. So his theory provided a solution in his inner conflict. Anatomy doesn't count. Dismiss biology and be free of the terrible burden of being male. Even though he had the same vile genitals as his father, it didn't mean he was an out-of-control Neanderthal and went after vulnerable women, children, and birds. Money wished to flee nature to escape how he was made. I propose that was a source of his biophobia, an irrational fear and hatred of biology. His invention of a psychological sex untethered to chromosomes and genitals is consistent with his deep-seated biophobia. It defined his life's work and the subsequent development of gender ideology. In its absence, today's gender transgender epidemic wouldn't exist. So to further understanding money, it's important to know he was a member of a group of sex researchers and academics, several of whom were disciples of Alfred Kinsey. Kinsey, one of history's most deviant and public personalities, campaigned against traditional sexual morality. This, the consortium that included money argued that all forms of consensual sexuality are good or at least neutral. Problems arise not from sex, but from guilt, fear, and repression. So this is a obviously disturbing gentleman who's influencing where we are today. Oh, goodness. Unusual sexual behaviors, what are those? What could that mean? Uh, which activities did money believe we shouldn't judge? Forgive me, you must. Uh, you might wish you could unread what's ahead. I regret the necessity of quoting the vulgar material that follows and describing off offensive subjects, but I know of no other way to support my claims. This is from the author. One of the innovations of PSYCHUS, the Sexual Information Education Council of the United States, brought to sex ed was called Sexual Attitude Reassessment, the SAR, S-A-R. Tell patients with intimacy problems, they argue doctors and therapists must acknowledge or must be knowledgeable of and comfortable hearing about anything and everything. The assumption of, upon which SAR is built include, I quote, we have a right and obligation to know objectively the range of human sexual behavior. Each person has a right to his or her own beliefs and convictions. But professionals are uncomfortable discussing sexual issues. Said the sex ed crusaders, the professional must examine the change and change their attitudes. How? In the 1940s, Kinsey suggested that sexually explicit material, pornography, be used for educational purposes. He, in fact, turned the addict of his home at, at Indiana University into a studio where he filmed colleagues and their wives. In the 1970s, John Money devised lectures for medical students including slides of unusual sexual behaviors. There's that word again, unusual. Here's what it means. Money from Money. Money introduced the films to the John Hopkins Medical School curriculum in 1971. The show featured explicit photographs of people engaged in bestiality, urine drinking, feces eating, and various amputation fetishes. Money had also screened a stag film of five women and three men having group sex. Money was a depraved human being and advertised it to the world. Now we understand his campaign against the perversions category in psychi psychiatry's Bible, the DSM. In fact, the term was dropped in the DSM-3 and paraphilias was adopted. Money's immorality extended to children. He claimed that from an early age, children must be exposed to explicit material images in order to understand the difference between male and female sex organs. He publicly endorsed pedophilia and incest, calling the former a love affair between an age-discrepant couple. About incest, he wrote, 
A childhood sexual experience, such as being the partner of a relative, need not necessarily affect the child adversely. You get the picture? Like Kenzie, Money was a degenerate, disturbed man. Like Kenzie, he crusaded to rid society of repressive Judeo-Christian taboos, stir up controversy, break down restrictions and taboos, create a new world where anything goes, and be in the limelight, confident and self-satisfied during the process. Money aggressively promoted his gender theory, but it remains speculation. How could he demonstrate the nurture, not nature, determined gender identity? How could he prove beyond doubt that chromosomes and genitals don't matter? He couldn't until a family with a unique dilemma showed up in his office. 1965, a young couple from Winnipeg, Canada by the names of Janet and John Raymer gave birth to two identical twin boys whom they named Bruce and Brian. At birth, the boys were fine, after, but after a few months, a doctor recommended circumcisions due to an issue with the twins' foreskins. During Bruce's procedure at eight months old of age, an electrocauterate needle was used instead of a scalpel, and his entire penis was burned beyond repair. The Reamers were desperate for months, until one day they heard a famous professor on TV confidently explaining that gender was more important than anatomy and therefore a boy could be successfully raised as a girl. Finally, there might be an answer for poor Bruce. They traveled to John Hawkins to see John Money when the, tents, the twins were 22 months old. The Reamers may have thought Dr. Money was the answer to their prayers, but the opposite was true. Bruce and Brian were the answer to his. They were the perfect test case for his theory. Brian was Bruce's quintessential matched control a genetic clone raised in the same home. If Bruce could be successfully raised as a girl, Money could prove his theory to the world. Money was known for his intellectual speaking skills and confidence. He was one of the most highly respected sex researchers in the world at one of the world's premier medical centers. He was the authority on ambiguous genitalia and he knew how to promote himself. He also did not tolerate disagreement. He was known for his tantrums and violent reactions. Apparently Money was like his father after all. When the Reamers first met Dr. Money at the psychohormonal research unit he directed, Ron was 20 and had finished seventh grade. Janet was 21 and had completed ninth grade. Janet said decades later, I looked up to him like a god. I accepted whatever he said. The doctor told them if they followed his instructions, Bruce would identify as a girl and grow up to be a happy, well-adjusted woman. The outcome of their consultation was hardly surprising. Bruce was castrated and surgeons constructed female appearing external genitalia. He was renamed Brenda and clothed in pink dresses. When Brenda was older, Money explained she would, never, she would need an operation to construct a vagina and hormones to go through female puberty. Dr. Money emphasized that for the success of the sex change, Ron and Janet eradicate any doubts they may have about the treatment as they could weaken Brenda's identification as a girl. He also warned they were not under any circumstance to tell Brenda she'd been born a boy. Money's approach can be summed up in this way. I have an idea. Let's raise this boy as a girl and see what happens. Ugh. Bruce was the first child in the world born with normal genitals to have sex reassignment surgery. Every year the Raymers uh, would travel to Baltimore to see Dr. Money. In between visits, Janet kept him informed with letters and phone calls. When Brenda and Brian were six in 1972, Money revealed his twins case to the public at an annual meeting of the American Association 
for the advancement of science in Washington, D.C. He told the capacity crowd over a thousand that a normal male infant had been raised as a girl and the experiment was a resounding success. They could learn more about it, he told them in his book published that day, Man and Woman, Boy and Girl. Describing the book, Cola Pintos, it writes, the account portrayed the experiment of an unqualified success as an unqualified success. In comparison with her twin brother, Brenda provided what money var uh, variously described as an extraordinary and remarkable contrast. Brian's interest in cars and gas pumps and tools was compared with Brenda's avid interest in dolls, a dollhouse, and doll carriage. Brenda's interest in kitchen work was placed alongside Brian's disdain for it. All in all, the twins embodied an almost miraculous division of taste, temperament, and behavior along gender lines and seemed the ultimate test that boys and girls are made, not born. Money's announcement was groundbreaking, and he made certain it got exposure in both professional and lay publications. The twin story became a landmark case and brought John Money fame and funding for the rest of his life. There were a few dissenters. One was Milton Diamond, a professor of anatomy and reproductive biology at the University of Hawaii. Diamond's position was that male and female identities are hard-wired in the brain during the initial months of pregnancy. In the 60s, he published challenges to Money's theory of psychosexual neutrality and voiced concerns over sex reassignment surgery in babies. When Money reported the twin experiment of success, Diamond insisted his conclusion was premature as the twins were only six. Diamond remained one of the few longtime vocal critics of Money, and, but Money fought hard against opponents and intimidated editors from giving a voice to Diamond. Hmm, that sounds familiar today. There's evidence Money was a tyrant at Hopkins, too. Even when an alternative, less invasive treatment was developed for infant boys with underdeveloped genitals, Money refused to present it to parents as a possibility. In his opinion, sex reassignment surgery was their sole option. Also sounds familiar. Quentin Van Metter, a pediatric endocrinologist who was trained at John Hopkins in the early 80s, recounts an infant who was born with a micropenis. He had normal XY chromosomes, so the endocrinologist suspected the issue was his pituitary gland, in which case he might develop a normal genitalia in response to hormones. He was placed on a six-week scientific protocol required requiring an initial week of hormone therapy in the hospital, followed by five weeks of hormone injections at home, then returned to Hopkins to evaluate the response. Dr. Van Metter, from a YouTube transcript, said the baby goes home and comes back six weeks later. I went out to call the baby and the family back into the clinic office, and there was the mom. But sitting on her lap was a child depressed in a pink frilly outfit with a white um, bonnet on his head. I said, I thought you were bringing your baby boy this time. He said, oh, Dr. Money met with us before we left the hospital. Now we did not invite Dr. Money in to see this patient because we did not need his consultation. But he found out the child was there, grabbed the mother, sat her down, and said to the mother, these endocrine doctors don't know what they're doing. This protocol will not work. It never has never worked. You need to go home, tell your family that you have a baby girl change the name, dress the child as a female, you can come You can come back and will prove to those silly endocrinology doctors that they don't know what they're doing. But upon examining the baby, Dr. Van Meter recalls his penis was normal. His mother had heeded Dr. Money's instruction and dressed him as a girl's clothing, but the boy also received hormone injections by the endocrinologist and his penis had responded as they hoped. 
Everything that we had planned and hoped for and used our scientific experience and logic and previously established protocols worked perfectly. This was a boy who was going to be perfectly fine and raised as a boy, and the baby went home and was raised as a boy. And so it went. Money remained in the limelight for decades, and his theory was taught as dogma. In 1974, Money published Sexual Signatures, written for the general public, and again reported the twin experiment as a total success. In 1978, the twin case was still the single most compelling evidence proving nature was more important than biology in determining gender identity. That year, Edwin Goldwyn, a documentary filmmaker with the BBC, was investigating gender identity. Goldwyn visited John Hopkins and heard the twin case may not have been exactly how money portrayed it. Colopinto quotes Goldwyn, I was getting vibes from people in Baltimore being quite embarrassed by money and the prominence of this case in the literature. I could tell that these people were getting increasingly worried. Goldwyn located the Child Guidance Clinic treating Brenda in Winnipeg. Keith Sigmundson, the psychiatrist who supervised Brenda's case, agreed to be interviewed by Goldwyn. Um, only under conditions that gar guaranteed the Raymers and their clinicians an anonymity. And the program wouldn't be sold in Canada or the U.S. When Goldwyn asked about the prognosis of Brenda's sex reassignment, Sigmundson paused. Describing his hesitation years later to Colapetinto, he said, after all, it was still Hopkins and money was the guru. Following his silence, Sigmundson replied, I don't think all the evidence is in. At the present time, however, she does display certain features, which would make me be very suspicious that she will ever make an adjustment as a woman. Fast forward 19 years to 1977. Brenda, age 32, went public, but she was then David, a janitor in a slaughterhouse, married to a woman and father to three adopted children. The whole thing was a hoax. The experiment had been com a complete failure. Far from accepting his gender reassignment, David had fought against it tooth and nail from the beginning. He had refused to play with dolls, ripped his dresses off, and, re and preferred wrestling to cooking. He even urinated standing up when possible. Brenda had been teased relentlessly for his boorish way. She moved, spoke, and gestured. Kids called her cavewoman. In second grade, she wanted to be a garbage man, and in eighth grade, a car mechanic. As puberty started, money began pressuring Brenda, who was already on estrogen, to grow breasts, to have surgery to construct a vagina. Brenda was fiercely resistant. To her, that, um, that was a, a nightmare. After years of this ordeal, not only for Brenda, but the whole family, Brenda's psychiatrist urged her parents to reveal the truth. Despite money's warning to never do so, they gave in. It was 1980 and the twins were 14 when Brenda was told she'd been born a boy. Speaking about that moment years later, David said, I was relieved. Suddenly it all made sense why I felt the way I did. I wasn't some sort of weirdo. I wasn't crazy. Brenda returned to living as a boy at once. He chose the name David because he felt that his whole life he'd been courageously fighting Goliath. His mother reported the development of Dr. Money, but Money always insisted, at least publicly, that the case was lost to follow up and continue to advocate for sexual assignment surgeries for infant boys. When David learned of his fame in the medical literature and of Money's false report success, he was shocked. David was especially concerned that because of Money's claims about him, the medical protocol for other boys was to get the same treatment, sexual assignment. David explained, By me not saying anything, the medical community was under the impression that my case was a success story. I was shocked 
when I heard that people thought that my case was a sex story. 1997, Diamond and Sigmundson published a bombshell paper. The landmark case of the boy who'd become a normal happy girl was in fact bogus. The present findings Diamond and Sigmundson wrote show the individual did not accept the sex of rearing. So controversial were the findings that it took the authors two years to find a journal willing to publish them. How did Money respond? He didn't. The esteemed professor simply stopped mentioning and writing about the case. So then what happened to these young kiddos? There are many lessons to be learned from the Raymers family's tragedy. First, it illustrates the arrogance of a scientist in a powerful position and how he exploited and ultimately destroyed a family with the aim of furthering his ideology and gaining fame and fortune. Second, we see the readiness of the medical profession and the, of academics to adopt ideas because they support the social movements of the day. So heartbreaking. The lesson was relevant to this discussion is that money's biophobic theory was wrong. David was not born gender neutral with an equal potential of identifying as male or female. Despite the years of sincere effort by his parents, relatives, and school staff to enforce his identity as a girl, David preferred stereotypical boy play and behavior. Apparently, the presence of a Y chromosome instead of two X's had a huge lasting impact. At a 1987 NIH meeting, John Money was honored as a scientist funded for 25 consecutive years. Infant sexual reassignment surgery was one of the most important clinical con contributions to medical science. Following Money's death in 2007, Anki Earhart, a psychologist who was his colleague and co-author, wrote, He made extraordinary contributions. Scholars are indebted to him for his brilliance, his scientific contributions, and his passionate commitment to research and clinical care. No surprise, the Kinsey Institute called Money an extraordinary pioneer, a visionary researcher. They established the John Money Collection of his personal and professional papers. We are most honored to have been the fortunate recipient of his support and his exceptional collaboration. Most honored? No. John Money was an emotionally disturbed, deviant child abuser who, seeking the recognition and fame he craved, exploited a simple working class family who'd suffered a terrible tragedy. He was a public supporter of pedophilia and incest, yet to this day he's celebrated by at least some academics, physicians, and mental health professionals. Next time you're getting advice from someone who with lots of diplomas, it's something to keep in mind. That's chapter one. Thank you for tuning in to the Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert podcast. It has been an honor to serve. If you are struggling, have questions, or in need, Dr. Gilbert offers a free consultation for new clients. Check us out at healinglives.com to book a call. If this has been helpful to you, please share it, leave a review, and help us get the word out so that we can see lives changed, marriages transformed, and more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The Healing Life Center offers online courses, programs, books, intensives, and other services to help you live biblically and well. Discover more resources on YouTube and in Dr. Gilbert's Healing Marriage Facebook group, The Healing Marriage.